3: It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the
1: present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living
2: being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through
1: with us.
0: Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a current release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here again with
1: Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps,
0: and Genevieve Pasky. In the first half of this conversation, we talked about Walt Disney Studios' Mulan, a mostly traditionally animated 1998 movie about a young Chinese girl whose family honor forces her to dress up as a man and go to war so her aging, wounded father doesn't have to. Her society's traditions say that women can only honor their families by being quiet and pretty and marrying well, but she has to defy those traditions to protect her family, even though her parents would much rather she follow the rules than act out to save them. That exact dynamic plays out again in Moana, Disney's latest animated feature, about the daughter of a chief on a Polynesian island protected by a reef and full of abundant resources. The sea itself is a character in this movie, not just in an abstract, arty setting kind of way, but in a water tentacle that does Moana's hair for her and brings her (laughs) presence kind of way. And the sea is calling Moana to leave the island and save her people from a curse caused by a brash trickster demigod named Maui. But Moana's parents want her to stay safe on the island and follow their longtime family tradition. Just like Mulan, she can only save them by ignoring their wishes and following a deeper cultural urge, one that takes her out to sea, first on her own, and then with Maui reluctantly in tow. For this film, Disney drew from a broad set of myths covering a lot of different Pacific Island cultures, and the studio built an extensive brain trust of cultural consultants and caretakers, which they brought together to explore the Maui legends at length. Then they ran their storyline through a vetting system to make sure it would be accurate, respectful, and representational. The result is a recognizable Disney story, but it still feels like something newly, freshly integrated with the world that it's portraying. And the songs, with lyrics by Hamilton composer Lin-Manuel Miranda, certainly don't hurt. We'll get into that for you in just a minute. You're welcome. Maui, shapeshifter,
3: demigod of the wind and sea, I am Hero oh, of what? men. What? It's actually Maui, shapeshifter, demigod of the wind and sea, hero of men. I interrupted from the top, hero of men. Go. I am not going on a mission with some little girl This is my canoe, and
1: you will journey to different.
3: I did not
1: see that coming The ocean is a friend of mine First, we've got to go through a whole ocean of bad
2: We're going to the realm of monsters
3: Don't worry, it's a lot farther down than it looks
0: So what did you guys make of Moana?
2: Loved it unreservedly.
1: I liked it a lot.
3: Yeah, it's really good.
1: Yeah, I'm on board.
2: Okay, so we're done discussing it. (laughs) That's all go home. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I liked it
1: a lot. I liked it more than Mulan even. What? (laughs) Yeah, shockingly.
0: You know, I loved this movie in the theater. It made me cry. I walked out with huge emotions uh, surrounding it. But I I walked out really with only one song from the movie stuck in my head, and that was You're Welcome, the song Mm -hmm. that Maui, Dwayne Johnson, sings that's kind of the genie's introduction song, the like, hey, here's how awesome I am. And the rest of it for me was kind of, those are some good songs, I guess. Those They all kind of work conceptually. And then I went home and listened to the soundtrack. Now I get emotional when I look at the lyrics to the soundtrack. (laughs) I get emotional when I listen to the soundtrack. There are so many layers to this movie that I don't think I got the first time through because it's such a big and beautiful film and there's so much going on visually and conceptually that I I think some of the stuff that's going on conceptually and symbolically just didn't have room to sink in and I'm actually looking forward to seeing this movie
2: again as much as I loved it. I think I'm going to love it more the second time. Yeah, I've seen it two times now and loved it equally both times. I joked when we uh, started recording uh, this podcast that I kind of wish we were just talking about Moana because there's so much to talk about with, with this movie and to unpack. Like, I mean, we could probably just do an entire episode on how it deals with the whole chosen one trope or talk about the music Which I want to talk about the music because I think we're mostly in agreement that this is kind of the the apex of a recent upswing for Disney animation. And I think the music is maybe the clearest representation of that because this is a musical beginning to end in a way that Frozen or Tangled or I guess those are the only recent films that have musical elements they they are not. Like the frozen just kind of stops being a musical two thirds of the way through. And I really respected and enjoyed how Moana threw back to that like Disney golden age musical tradition. Like you mentioned, You're Welcome being a genie song, you know, and of course it has the I Want song and it has the villagers establishing the setting song. Like they're very familiar types of Disney songs that we haven't seen in the recent trend of Disney movies.
3: The songs are all growers, too. Huh? You're Welcome is the one definitely that you walk out of the theater humming, but the rest are, are... as, as Test Night <laughs> has proven uh, in between the recording <laughs> sessions, uh, there Consider are other the lines, other lines that, that kind of lodge themselves in the brain and won't let go.
2: I guess uh, I'm the liar because i was i was singing how far i'll go like from the minute the movie ended
0: yeah i mean yeah i i think you're welcome just completely crowded that that went out of my head in the theater Here's the thing about the songs. I mean, I love "Shiny," the oh, yeah. David Bowie number, essentially, mm-hmm. but it is so musically and lyrically complicated. I couldn't walk out of the theater singing it. Mm-hmm. And, like, I had to go home and study that thing before and, I was ready to. And you're to sing You're welcome.
3: Is it. specific to the film. It's specific to Maui, but but uh, uh, that is very specific to that crab character. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in a way that, that maybe it's, it's harder to port those feelings over to anything else. You know?
1: Uh, what a brilliant casting choice, too. No nobody, nobody would Jermaine well, Catama could do that.
0: There's such a complicated interaction of things going on there because it's Jemaine Clement from Flight of the Concords. He is of Maori descent. So, you know, he's from a bloodline that's from the area in question. And Clement has long worked with Taika Waititi. Uh, the two of them were in a comedy group together. They're like longtime partners on a lot of different films. Waititi did the first draft of this movie and was like tying in like his own Maori background and, and wanted it to be more about Maori myth. Lin-Manuel Miranda composed the song because 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 he understood that Jermaine Clement was going to be doing the voice and the Flight of the Concords had done a Bowie takeoff number so he specifically wanted to give Jermaine Clement a Bowie number because he knew <laughs> he could handle it like just sort of the tangle of connections here is very like friendship based more so than Disney based which I think just makes the history of that song pretty interesting But my point is it's not something you can walk out of the theater singing because it's too complicated you have to learn it well, the
1: music is fascinatingly diverse in certain respects I mean and, and I, I like the fact that you know what's the big soaring number again How far I'll go yeah how far a girl is is a reprise? I mean, you come mm-hmm. back to it again and yeah. again, and it has different contexts. I and love the reprises and yeah, those, really, yeah. you know, moving stuff. And then you, and then your are welcome is what what it, it is a very entertaining song and a nice introduction to Maui as a character. And then and then Shiny's just a quirky, complicated song, a, an odd little homage to Bowie, and it gives us movie personality, which is not saying that it totally lacks personality, but it is still a machine-tooled, you know, Disney production that is not so separated from the last two Disney movies. These little differences that the film makes all over the place set it apart, you know, enough from those other two.
2: I mean, even though Disney animation has had a lot of really good movies like Zootopia and Wreck-It Ralph, you know, that are of this recent era, like I consider Moana to be of the same like lineage as Tangled and Frozen, mm-hmm. not just because it's a quote-unquote princess movie but because there is that musical and myth element to mm-hmm. it that is not in Zootopia and people or- will
1: skate to it on ice <laughs> and my kids will my kids will drink large slushies uh, uh, while watching it
2: there's something really
0: perverse about the idea of, of taking a movie set in like the, the sun-kissed <laughs> islands and it's so much about being out on the ocean under the blazing sun
2: and turning it into an ice capace yeah,
1: putting it in, a, in the united center
2: <laughs> but that realm of monsters that's going to be so cool honestly nice
1: that's true yeah (laughs) Yeah.
2: going back to moana the movie i did uh, appreciate that even though this is like just beautiful you know well-honed cgi animation there is also some playfulness with that cgi animation and the styles we see like the the realm of monsters i think is just very interestingly designed and uh during your welcome there is some not quite it's like 3d rendered 2d animation sort right, of the, the tattoo stuff
3: yeah yeah, yeah.
0: Really nice. but uh straight out of hercules yeah conceptually sure. or uh, visually really there's so much in this movie that if you know disney movies really closely you're just like constantly mm-hmm. like cherry picking like oh here's here's this from that here's this from the other thing like in terms of the character's design and how they're acted out but this movie is also jam-packed with Easter eggs and mm-hmm. I like I recommend checking out some of the YouTube <laughs> videos <laughs> in case you for instance missed that one of the little coconut <laughs> monsters is Baymax from uh, oh. Big Hero 6 yeah. Yeah.
1: and
2: and Tasha we talked about this How after I like that
1: too boy they're really on a roll big time yeah, go ahead.
2: yeah we mentioned this after we, we saw this together and I wondered if the coconut attack was intentionally modeled on Mad Max Fury Road and it is it absolutely is so it wow. was very
0: very conscious and deliberate oh yeah there there are a ton of—I mean, the, the the hidden mickeys that have kind of become like de rigueur for uh, Disney animators to put into their film. This thing is so ridiculously full of like little visual references. And it's almost extra textual. It's weird how it can be an extra textual, even though it's in the film. But there are so many of these things are tiny little things that you just you can't notice like first time yeah. through. But when the, finding out that they're there gives me this like warm feeling for the directors who are producing something very serious and emotional, and they're also playing with it.
2: it but I don't think it is like entirely extra textual because it does speak. To, it speaks to two things. It speaks to the care that is being put into this movie from the the music to the visual to yeah. having the oceanic trust uh, advise on it. I think like th- having those little for fans only type details is an extension of that attitude, but it is also kind of a matter of lineage and like where this falls in the Disney tradition and like establishing it as part of a larger Tradition. And at this point, Disney can do that.
0: Uh, what I kind of wanted to come back to was uh, you said we could spend this whole podcast talking about the what it does with the, the Chosen One. I'd like to hear your lead off to that. What, are, what, are, what specifically are you thinking about?
3: Yeah, given how tiresome Chosen One stories can yeah. be, it's, it didn't even occur to me that this was kind of edgy into cliche by having the Chosen yeah, One
2: story. Yeah, well, I mean, they spend a fair amount of energy questioning the, the whole Chosen One thing with Maui asking her, What makes you think the ocean chose you? and her doubting that the ocean chose her and the changing nature of what she realizes she's chosen to do. Like, I mean, one of the things I love about this movie is that, like, the quest she sets off on is to go and get a a man, a demigod, to fix the mess he made. And she ends up realizing that she's the one who has to fix the mess he made. (laughs) The nature of her quest changes dramatically there, but she, as is Always a case with chosen like she she rejects it, you know, like she throws the heart of the ocean back in, but then she takes it back on her own terms. Like she chooses herself; she is not chosen. She chooses to do it.
0: It occurs to me suddenly that Mulan does the exact same thing. I mean, she Mulan goes off to war not because she is interested in the war, not because she's interested in protecting the emperor or the empire but because she wants to save her father and then she ends up like taking up that quest as her own like she she takes it up on the hurt on terms that are forced on her as a boy and then the quest comes to define her and she ends up taking it up again mm-hmm. as herself under mm-hmm. her own identity and for her own reasons yeah. I think that becomes an interesting
2: parallel yeah I didn't consider that but we should have done that in uh, in connections <laughs> well I, I didn't I didn't think about it until you said that
0: which yeah. is why these discussions are fun yeah.
1: well, and. Another thing I, I liked about it is that I mean she has this established desire from her youth to explore beyond the reef, but I like that it, that decision ends up being in the context of what it takes to lead, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it, you know, I mean the two things dovetail, but I like the idea of her having to make a decision. Uh, a difficult decision for what's best for the island that she is now responsible for. That's a pretty big deal. I don't know if, there's, if there are, are the parallels to, the, to this uh, among the Disney princess type.
2: Of having to save the... Of making uh,
1: that kind of a decision for, you know, deciding as a, as to be a, the hero. As a leader of, of a... Deciding uh, the
3: fate of her people. Right. Kind of thing.
2: I mean, Not Pocahontas good. does it a little bit.
0: Yeah, and I, I mean, Belle consciously makes the decision to sacrifice herself for her father.
1: Yeah, I just think, I'm thinking Thinking of almost politics here, of just like actually having to be responsible for whole, a people. That,
3: now we'll go explore again, movement. Uh, uh, yeah, and
1: also just save the island. I mean, the, the island w- is going to die off if she doesn't. Uh... I
0: mean, I guess in Frozen you have a, a princess who specifically, like for the good of her people, decides to leave because she realizes she's dangerous to yeah. them. But she finds fulfillment in literally abandoning all of her responsibilities. You know, and she finds a, like a big explosive awesome musical number (laughs) in abandoning all of her responsibilities. This is so much about a woman trying to navigate the connection between her responsibilities, her personal desires, and the way one can actually serve the other. The more I, I go back and listen to Where You Are, when I was watching the film the first time, it just struck me as a parallel to the Big Song and Beauty and the Beast that's about establishing where Belle lives. You know, it's a here's the setting we're in. The more I listen to it, the more I realize that it's it's a really kind of sarcastic, subversive song about how wrong her father is, but how she's going to take up these responsibilities anyway, and about her coming to terms with the things that she's expected to do as a leader. And she embraces all of these things warmly, even though they work against everything she wants. And there's that creepy little line that keeps easing its way mm-hmm. in there, and, and no, no one leaves, <laughs> which she sings as a small child, and then her father sings it back to her, and it's just this, and we're all. Going to stay here together forever. It's so strange, you know, and it's so subversive. And she has to work against it. The
1: island provides what they need, right? What's the line?
2: Yeah, that's (laughs) one a repeated line. The island gives us what we need. Yeah. Until it doesn't.
1: Consider the coconut, everyone.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Consider the tree.
3: Useful for so many things. It's almost as if they lived under the sea and they were never supposed (laughs) to leave.
1: Another parallel. Speaking of... Uh, well, also, the I mean, the directors of The Little Mermaid are the directors of Moana. Mm-hmm.
2: Yes, and also the directors of Princess and the Frog and there's a, a little mermaid shout out at the end of the credits did you all stay for the post okay. credits scene we did but wait it's where the crab says basically if i had a cool jamaican accent yeah, or something you'd help me like yeah, basically yeah, yeah, yeah. Shout that, out one, to that one was a little naked for me that was uh, i will much. tell
3: you the one line i would remove
2: oh i think i think it's the same line yes, we would all remove
3: use a bird it's called a tweet <laughs>
2: It didn't bother me as much when I was like, oh, he's the genie. It, you know, it's like, oh, it's like doing a Johnny Carson impression in the Cape of Wonders for some reason. But it is a, a big clunker. Yeah.
0: And it becomes a big clunker because it's the only thing like that in the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Huh? Well, I guess the Mad
2: Max reference is kind of yeah, like but the that. The Mad so originally Max a Snapchat reference works with, reference with it, didn't, it didn't
1: really work. You mean a Peach reference? <laughs> oh my God, that would oh. be great. I would have, this would be. have been number one on my top 10 list if it were a Peach <laughs> reference. <laughs>
0: i mean there's a coconut reference <laughs> the coconut's like a peach it's right
1: close.
0: the yeah. island gives us all the peaches we need I scott enjoy it. i
1: enjoy it i enjoy both
0: we should just talk about the the animation here mm. i mean like the whole aesthetic of this film is so like brightly lit and so much about like so transparency colorful. and and <laughs> dynamics of water there's just there's so much going on here visually I think one of the reasons I couldn't walk out the door singing shiny was because there's so much visually going on during that scene (laughs) to parallel all of the complicated things going on with the music. Was there ever a point during this film where you felt a little overwhelmed with everything going on?
3: I wouldn't say overwhelmed, but well, maybe the coconut monsters uh, attack. Like, yeah. slow down, and I want—I want to focus on stuff. But um, there's and,
2: one that looks like Baymax in here somewhere. Yeah, I, I need to find like, it.
3: <laughs> I knew I was in good hands early on when that first scene of of Baby Moana yeah. walking out to the ocean. It's like this is just lovely. I feel privileged to watch uh, this animation. This is this is nice.
2: Yeah, that's a scene that really sticks out in my too, and like. Since Pinocchio, water has been the benchmark kind of of, sure. of of successful animation and how it handles water. And it seems like we're at the point where it like, can't get any better. Like I mean, mm-hmm. like Good Dinosaur, you good know, dinosaur like that was really like, cool. the, you know. And
3: what was that short in front of uh, uh, Finding
2: Dory? Piper. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, it's amazing how this movie uses water as a character, which is a, a very interesting choice that we can maybe talk about a little more as well. But um, that scene with baby Moana where the water like kind of opens up to greet her and you just see uh, it looks like an aquarium behind aquarium glass, you know, and like you see the whole ocean just like spreading out in front of her. Like that's like a thing that can only happen in animation and can only happen with CGI and look that beautiful. So um, that scene with baby Moana was Great uh, front to back, but that particular shot of the water opening up and showing the whole inner ocean was incredible.
3: I saw this in two D. Was that a mistake?
2: I've seen it in both. Okay. Um, and I I think two D is better because you get to see the full brightness. I mean, it's a bright movie, so like seeing it in three D, it was still a bright movie. Like there wasn't any muddiness, but it was amplified in two D for sure.
0: Yeah, the brightness and the just the clarity of all of it, like. Kind of my go-to vacation is just like spending time in uh, Caribbean countries. And there were several moments during this film, I, I felt like I could feel the sunlight. Mm-hmm. I felt like, like I could feel the sand. And it gave me like nostalgia for places that I've I've spent like three days at a time. It made me really want to go back to these places. But
2: it also handled darkness really well. Like The, the scenes at night on the water were, were very striking and, and lovely as well.
0: Reminded yeah. me a little bit of uh, Ang Lee's Life of Pi. Mm, yeah. I guess just to, before we start bringing Mulan into the conversation, I just I kind of want to loop back a little bit to the depth that this movie has in terms of, of thematic resonance. I mean, so much of this movie is drawn out of... South Pacific Islander culture, like a a lot of different traditions, a lot of different myths were all kind of brought together and and melting potted into this story. But the themes that I didn't see until I started really listening to the soundtrack – are So much about identity, a specific identity, both culturally and personally. And we talked in the first segment about Mulan and, and identity and coming of age stories and finding your own way and striking out on your own and leaving your parents and all these things Disney has done over and over. But I didn't really feel the weight of that here until I looked into the, the music, how Moana keeps coming back to this idea, both culturally and specifically, of knowing where you are knowing who you are, knowing not just who you want to be, but who you are at any given moment. And that is something that the film hits pretty hard. But I just I hadn't realized until I started looking at the lyrics, how cleverly and carefully it's woven into just everything
2: that happens in this film. One song we haven't really talked about yet is We Know the Way, which is, I think, the song that speaks most strongly to what you're talking about and is not sung by any characters. It's sung right. by um, Lin-Manuel Miranda, and I am going to butcher this name, I'm so sorry, <laughs> Opetaia Foa'i, who is a Samoan uh, artist and contributes the native language uh, elements of that song, And that song has grown on me hugely. There is a certain kind
0: of evocative emotion that you get from something sung in a a different language. Mm -hmm. And I think that Disney has sometimes used other languages to code information. I don't want to say that wouldn't work in English, but that plays differently because it's not in English. And I always go back to one of the most resonant things I've ever discovered in a Disney movie is in Brother Bear. There is a song that the spirits sing to the boy that they're turning into a bear and it's in Inuit. And if you look up the lyrics, what the lyrics mean are basically singing to him about how he has come to a place where he is afraid and he does not understand what's going on and they're going to help him. And that is not expressed in the lyrics in English in any way. You have to look into it to discover what's there. I think it was Bustle did a really interesting article trying to unpack the lyrics here that are delivered in, it's like a small subset of a Pacific Islander language, and it's trying to unpack kind of what lyrically what's being sung here. And it's fairly complicated. They can't, they don't know the language, so they can't get close enough to it. But again, it kind of speaks to the, and I don't want to mess it up, so I, I'm just going to recommend it. Maybe we can link to it, but it kind of speaks to like a larger spiritual experience that they're having being out on the water and like tapping into this great cultural tradition that they all have in traveling and seeking and like and living with the spirits. And it's really cool.
2: Was Lion King the first... Disney movie to incorporate like another language into the uh, kind of the that. English overture song that's the first one that that sticks out to me because that circle of life was so. Well, I guess not to mention Hakuna Matata, but
0: yeah, for sure. I mean, it seems like something that they're more comfortable doing. Yeah, much like they're more comfortable with so many other like culturally inclusive things these days. So all of that was like a long speech that really ends up mm-hmm. getting how to how I feel about it, and I'm only I only suggested it because you were kind of having trouble articulating it. Yeah. does any of that speak to what you're feeling, or is it something entirely yep, different? No,
2: what, what you said. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I cried so much at this movie. Like, I was basically in tears from beginning to end. And the music is why. Like, all the times I was crying is when music was happening. Like, I think the music here just has such a stronger emotional core than something like Mulan or a lot of even, you know, superior Disney movies. I think the music does not have such an emotional tie to to the movie's themes. And is that, I
0: mean, is it just because it's coming from an incredibly talented mm-hmm. lyricist and somebody who's a, like a very popular musician working within his own culture, which is very important to his music and his self-expression?
2: I mean, maybe it's, a, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'd have I to ask him.
0: Ob- objection, cause for speculation. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Well, we'll we, we should bring Mulan into this discussion. As much as we're enjoying talking about this movie, uh, we can talk about it in context, which is in theory what this podcast is about. <laughs> we'll be right back to talk a little more about how Moana and Mulan relate to each other.
3: It's time to put my stone on the mountain.
0: Okay. Well, then
2: head on back.
0: Put that stone up there.
2: Why aren't you trying to talk me out of it? You said that's what you wanted. It is.
0: When I die, I'm going to come back as one of these. Or I chose the wrong tattoo.
2: Why are you acting weird?
1: I'm the village crazy lady. That's my job.
2: If there's something you want to tell me, just tell me. Is there something you want to tell me?
0: Is there something you want to hear? Now it's time for Connections, where we bring the two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. As I said in the introduction to this episode, Moana and Mulan tell very similar stories about young girls who have to find their identities and rescue their families by defying those families, which is a great fantasy for kids. I think children in particular are kind of drawn to this kind of story where you have to kind of tell your parents to go get bent in order to discover who you are. And then... You reap great successes and are the most important thing in the story as a result. Am I wrong about that
1: I don't know you might be um, <laughs> I, I, it Ooh, depends fight, on, fight, depends fight. on the age of the, of the of the kids i mean my, I have an eight year old and a five year old there's I, I don't think they fantasize at all about rebelling against anything that we do. They're very attached um, at that age but but maybe maybe there's something exciting about being in that safe zone where you're watching a movie alongside your your parent and, and then being able to Uh, go on this adventure without leaving that safe space so maybe there's something to that
2: it's a really cool thought Mm -hmm. i think it's also worth noting that moana isn't entirely rebelling because she has the support of both her grandma and and her mom like helps her pack you know and and uh, And the ocean yeah and, (laughs) and the ocean yeah so i think like the rebelling and running away from home aspect doesn't maybe strike me as strongly in Moana as it does in Mulan. In Mulan, it's definitely like a stronger rejection of what her family wants for her.
0: Speaking of what her family wants in both of these films, Genevieve, you want to talk a little about uh, wacky grandmas?
2: <laughs> I mean, it's I mean uh, the grandmother figure in Moana is a lot uh, different and more nuanced than uh, than the one in Mulan, but I did think it was interesting that they both had that similar figure. Who and they both they, they look a little bit alike too. I guess they just look like cartoon grandmas, but you know. <laughs> I mean, they both definitely have that
0: I'm older and... I can say whatever I want. I can say whatever I want. Exactly. Kind of feel to them. But they also kind of, they physically reflect that in that, like, I've given up fighting fighting my body and I've just let it go. Like, yeah. they're both short and squatty. <laughs> Moana's grandmother in particular, like, that film really emphasizes her arm flab in a way <laughs> that isn't cartoonish or excessive, but that... I, I, I was just like, have I seen that before in a cartoon? Because she's... She She's sleeveless and she has like flabby arms. She has the body of a woman who might be in her 60s or 70s. And a lot has actually been said about Moana that I wasn't even aware of about how Moana herself has a more realistic body. Like she isn't princess wavy like say Mulan is. Um, And none of that really hit home for me. But I noticed the grandma's body
2: that just sort of reminds me to like I guess one argument for seeing this in 2D versus 3D is I didn't notice how beautifully and carefully rendered the skin in Moana was. The grandmother is certainly one aspect of that but even like her mother like the way she had wrinkles and the way her wrinkles looked they, they weren't like cartoony. They weren't like the two lines drawn around your eyes the way that you know so often represents wrinkles in, in animation you know. But yeah a lot of very thoughtful and nuanced character design in Moana that not so much in Mulan
0: (laughs) well I think it's interesting that both movies have patriarch dads who are kind of stiff and stuck in their ways and you know for whom family tradition mean a great deal and then kind of vaguely nurturing moms who aren't really characters at all and then the wacky grandma who comes around with the humor and in Moana I think much more is like the supportive as you say "I'm, I'm old enough I can do whatever I want including like supporting Moana in her dreams
3: uh, other other connections, of course, is they, they you know, have animal psychics. And frankly, if I had another f- problem with Moen is I could use more of, of the pig. Uh, oh, I the, love the pig. The pig is delightful. Oh, and, you know, he kind of disappears at a certain point. And, and my favorite detail on the Wikipedia page is Pua's voice is provided by the use of several <laughs> pigs.
2: <laughs> so authentic.
3: <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs>
2: and, so, and who voiced wacky uh, chicken sidekick? <laughs> hey, hey, hey.
3: That's uh, Alan Tudyuk. Um, I mean,
2: I, I, I actually had that same, uh, I said almost the exact same thing after the first time I saw Moana. Like, I needed more pig. but the, pig, the right the, amount of pig? I think it's it's the right amount of pig. He's the, the doting animal sidekick. and The pig
1: <laughs> is there to welcome uh, her when she returns. Yeah. Well, and, and also,
2: went. the first time she tries to go past the reef, the pig is there and almost dies. So the pig is not getting <laughs> back on that boat. You know, that 's just good pet ownership don 't take your pig <laughs> on the boat, take the stupidest animal that you <laughs> no, have like, he 's a stowaway hey he 's a stowaway right. She did not choose to take an, him an but edible, hey boat snack, an an snack.
3: edible stowaway
1: yeah. boat <laughs> snack. well I mean, the contrast between the comic relief animals, I suppose in Mulan and Moana are kind of a good demonstration of how far Disney has come. Uh, you know having the rock voice Maui does give you plenty of comedy. Already, so you don't really need that much from the animals. But what's nice about Hey Hey and that little pig is that they're more like funny little mascots than characters who have to chew up a lot of screen time. You just get that little button, you get that little note of comic relief that keeps the tone nice and light and keeps things from being too heavy. And that's it, and then you move on, and it's and it's a, it's a more evolved way of dealing with the whole comic relief thing, and still you know moving forward in a purposeful and serious and adventurous way. So rather than you, stalling the movie out,
3: are you telling me that Mulan did not need to dedicate all that space to the cricket? <laughs> oh, well, I the
1: like four, the, cricket. the
0: four-legged cricket. I, uh, the, 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 Why cri- does the cricket have four I legs? Like, mm-hmm. I
1: like the cricket just fine, but I'm, I'm really I'm really just slagging. Uh, I guess you wouldn't call a dragon an animal companion, but it's close. It's just like a sidekick that that provides a lot of comic. Relief, and it's just too much, and uh, way too much in Mulan.
0: The pig is so much like the dog in Mulan. Like, that is mm-hmm. an adorable dog that is introduced for a scene. And I still can't believe that they left the dog behind in mm-hmm. the story. Mm-hmm. But if the dog had come along, the dog would have overshadowed everything else that was going on. And when I saw the pig, I was like, Ugh, there's our animal companion that we're going to see for the rest of the movie. And when we left him behind, I was both relieved and really
1: surprised. I, mean,
2: I think it, Oh my
1: gosh, you were dreading seeing more of the pig?
2: I was well, dreading <laughs> an entire film full of pig antics. I, I, I honestly think leaving the pig behind is a was a conscious choice in a, a sort of comment on the animal mm-hmm. companion because she doesn't take the adorable, what you assume is going to be her animal companion, she gets stuck with this horrible, <laughs> useless chicken, who who does get to save the day, which is also another hallmark of these types of sidekicks is, like, as much as they're there for comic relief, they do always get a little mini-hero moment where they, they contribute to the victory in some way or another. But yeah, I mean, like, he's just like, he's ridiculous, and I, I, I love that he was there and not the pig, uh, the more I thought about it. Well, he's also a Oblivious,
0: which makes him a really interesting
2: animal companion because
0: Disney's been moving away from the idea of the talking animal companion and more to the, you know, the chameleon entangled or the horse entangled, which the re- by the way, the re- horse entangled is the horse in Mulan, just like upped a hundred IQ points. Yeah, I, I, that occurred to me too. <laughs> like the design is super mm-hmm. similar and the and the eye rolling. Yeah, mm-hmm. oh,
3: yeah, that too. Also the reindeer in Frozen too. Yes,
0: the sort of- exactly. Those sidekicks are all sympathetic. Like they're all there to be sounding boards and to make sad faces when the protagonist is sad and happy faces and then do helpful things. Like they're all there to reflect more broadly what the protagonist is feeling. Hey is oblivious to what everybody else is feeling, and that's a weird choice. I mean, it it's interesting. Tr- it's
3: truer to life, though. I mean, yeah. you
0: know,
3: as a dog owner, I can tell you, they don't care. <laughs> They're not sympathetic. Your your current dog doesn't care. is isn't <laughs> sympathetic. That's true. My old dog probably wouldn't care.
0: There um, are a lot of animal lovers, like, yelling at the podcast right now, I my know. dog cares what I
3: think <laughs> and how I feel. They don't. They don't.
0: <laughs> Okay, now that you've horrified us all, I think you had something to say about the Disney Renaissance. Um, but just so, you know,
3: just sort of, sort of, I just want to throw out: these are films that come from very different points in Disney history. Like Mulan, in a way, it's almost the end of the line for what we think of now as the Disney Renaissance. I mean, you had undisputed classics, you know, Little Mermaid to Beauty and the Beast to Aladdin to The Lion King. Uh, then you kind of get the Grey Zone, which movies I actually haven't seen. I should go back and catch up with Pocahontas and Hunchback of Notre Dame and Hercules. But then you have Mulan. Then after that, it gets far more disputable classics. I mean, you get Tarzan, which I know people like. I love Emperor's New Groove and Lilo and Stitch but those are much more cartoony Disney films than yeah than, and then like movies I've actually forgotten about like I know I, I think like I'm Brother sh- Bear
0: I'm sure well I, I know I, I'll I, never forget that movie I know
3: oh. I wrote a review of Atlantis The Lost Empire but could not even tell you anything about that one I don't hate Treasure Planet though people hate Treasure Planet but th- these were films that did not stick around or enjoy much in the way of box office Brother Bear too. sorry um, say, oh uh, you, I know
1: do you need to borrow my Home on the Range Blu-ray oh, Home
3: on <laughs> the on the Range Home on the Range <laughs> Uh, oh. But, I mean, right now, you know, as we've, we've suggested before, I mean, Disney is just on a roll. And since John Lasseter came over from Pixar to Disney Animation, I mean, I think Bolt was the first one, which I haven't seen. Is, is Bolt any good?
0: Oh, my God. Keith. I know. Yeah. Dog, Dog lover love supreme.
3: I'll I okay, watch Bolt. But, you know, more recently, uh, just the run of, of, you know, Zootopia and Big Hero 6 and Frozen and Tangled. And these are movies that my kids grow, have grown up watching and, and they're going to pa- get passed down to the next generation. I feel like we're really in a really good spot. But now I wonder, is it, is it going to turn? Uh, <laughs> have we uh, have we reached peak Disney? I, I and no, nothing suggests that we have, but, but you know, nothing really suggests that in the, in the 90s either.
2: Well, I think once the sequels start, the direct-to-video yeah, sequels start happening. Lasseter
3: has, you know, kind of put the kibosh on them. yeah because, like, they release things like Return to Never land theatrically you know there was a period where Disney was just not really concerned about Sully and its legacy
0: and they were releasing things like Mulan 2 which Mm -hmm. I haven't seen but I read a plot synopsis and it's all about Mulan and whether Mulan gets married to hunky soldier dude and Mushu like trying to uh, sabotage their relationship like on their way to their <laughs> wedding. And then her sabotaging somebody else's relationship by marrying somebody that she doesn't love to disrupt. A, like it, it, it sounds really strange.
3: Does, does Eddie Murphy come back for that? I can't imagine they actually, oh, get I can't Eddie imagine Murphy they would have. You know, yeah.
2: Didn't Robin Williams come back for the Aladdin came back sequel? For the se- second Aladdin yeah. sequel.
3: Mulan, you're not know, going to look this up. This is, this is great uh, podcast uh, material <laughs> here. No, it looks like uh, the voice of Mushu is provided by uh, Mark Mosley, almost almost oh. as big a star as Mosley. <laughs> Here's
0: the thing: I I actually did sort of want to fit the whole like Disney's push into straight-to-video stuff. I mean, that was happening at the same time as all of the other things we were talking about with the expansion and the uh, Florida offshoot and getting much bigger and the we're going to do a film a year and we're also going to put out several direct-to-video things a year. Mm-hmm. Like, that was a point where Disney was on a high that it had never been on before. Um, Lion King was the second biggest grossing movie of 1994, and it really did change animation history in a major way in terms of making at an area everybody suddenly saw as hugely profitable and an area they wanted to be in. But Disney was already undermining itself so heavily at that time. And Mulan really does feel like, I picture it like trying to float on top of the giant snow avalanche and like just skidding towards that cliff more and more rapidly. Mm -hmm. And Mulan was kind of the last moment before the cliff. Right now,
3: every Disney movie still feels like an event. I think by the time of Mulan it stopped feeling that way. It was like, oh, Disney's got a movie out too. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Yeah, like it kind of became an issue of quantity over quality of just like pushing out more product and to your question keith about do we see an end to this i will point out we have had two disney animation movies this year the first year in many years where that has been the case and on the horizon we do have Wreck It Ralph two and Frozen Two coming. So mm. I'm not calling it in, in any way, but there are there are, certainly, <laughs> over, <folks>. there are <laughs> But there are there are certainly signs of certain patterns being being repeated in terms of continuing to push out successful product, you know, based on the uh, success of previous product. You know? At the
0: same time, like the Disney Renaissance era was so tumultuous behind the scenes for Disney in terms of its leadership, and like around the time of Lion King, like all of that stuff was going on behind the scenes with Katzenberg and uh, and Eisner and Disney. I mean, there was just there was so much leadership change and focus change going on at the company, and I don't know that that's happening right now. I think like as long as Lassiter has enough pull and can keep the group of people that he's kind of established as the Disney Pixar brain trust – like they can only be in so many places at once and as they continue to ramp up how much product they're putting out like if this continues to happen how much of it is just because you know Lasseter and Ed Catmull and Brad Bird and like that that group of people can only be spread so thin yeah mm. I, I don't know I mean as if they're putting out movies as great as Moana like you've got to hit at some point a high where there's nowhere to go but down but we could still be getting like really good movies. so
2: this is like the yet. crest of the wave you're saying and <laughs> we're going over the reef I'm
0: saying we know we, like, territory. we know what we like we know who we are and no one
1: leaves i, I feel like i have infected all of you because because usually i i'm the one who likes to worry about it. like when things are going really well i'm the one who likes who is concerned about uh what the downside of that is going to be so I mean, it's good that you all are catching the fever here
2: it's all it's all theoretical consider the coconut guys yeah consider, consider the coconut consider
1: the, well, the machine the machine is working really well right now yeah
0: well, as long as the island keeps giving us what we need, uh, I think we'll be fine. As as long as the Kurd Grain Trust stays in place and no one leaves the island, <laughs> and we don't find any other islands, we'll be fine. And no one leaves. And no one leaves. <laughs> It sounds so much uh, scarier the second time they sing it. Milan is widely available on Blu-ray and DVD from Disney and on streaming via Amazon, Google Play, iTunes, and the usual streaming services. Moana is in theaters right now and no doubt will be through the holidays. We'll be right back with our usual recommendation segment, Your Next Picture Show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call this Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Keith, you want to kick us off?
3: We're at the end of the year, kind of contemplating the, the movie year that was and kind of going through what I saw this year, trying to carve uh, out a uh, top ten list. This is a film I, I'd almost forgotten about, it, not because it wasn't really good, just because I, I saw a lot of movies this year, but a film called Little Men by Iris Sachs. And our sex is quietly uh, turned into a really reliably terrific director. I did a movie a couple years ago called Love is Strange, they, they might have seen. And I really like his second film, uh, Forty Shades of, of Blue, quite a bit. Uh, this, his latest is a story of gentrification and how neighborhoods change. And it's a, a film without any, with a lot of conflict and not necessarily any clear-cut bad guys. Uh, uh, Greg Kinnear plays an actor who's ha- having some trouble, and he inherits his father's Brooklyn apartment it's a two-story flat uh, the downstairs is a is, is a dress shop which is it's kind of a, a, a remnant of the, of the neighborhood that it was it's like a, a little mom and pop uh, dress shop that's not particularly uh, trendy or you know she uh, they had to decide what to do with this and whether or not to raise the rent in the meantime his son and the son of the dress shop's owner befriend each other and uh it's sort of like this, this very beautifully portrayed uh, story of uh, friendship and, and, and conflict and the things that tear people apart and bring them together. And, and uh, it's a great New York movie, great uh, movie about living in the city, and uh, um, I, I highly recommend it.
1: It is out on DVD and streaming services. Yeah, You, you have to see this. this. is I love this movie so much. And it's, it is one of those things. Why, why isn't it on my top ten list? Maybe it will be. I haven't, it I haven't be. crafted it. But, you know, it's, it's got an Ozu influence, which is nice. But what's really great about it is like how well articulated everyone's point of view is and how there are no real villains, but it is a very sad situation and the toll that it takes on these these boys who are really close and it's a very important friendship, they, they have no control over you know, these very adult things that are happening. And it's a very heartbreaking. You know, they rebel in their own way. They give their parents the silent treatment for an extended period of time, but um, there's really no way they can stop what has to happen from from happening. And uh, and it's a film that I think builds to just one big emotional moment that just is just crushing. It's just wonderful.
3: I think it's a great movie also about how you see what's right and what's wrong as a kid very differently from how you see it as an adult. And not necessarily, you know, not necessarily better to be on the other side of that way of seeing the world either. No.
0: Yeah, it's it, that movie does really interesting things with sympathies mm-hmm. in terms of Everybody there is at fault. Everybody there is innocent. Some people have made much wronger choices than others. But you can kind of understand where people are coming from. And if not that, then certainly the binds they find themselves in. It's a really interesting movie.
1: Mm -hmm. Scott, what do you have for us? I wanted to recommend the documentary Tower by Mm -hmm. Keith Maitland, which is a film spotting favorite, a Golden Brick nominee uh, that I only just watched in the end of the year at Crush. It was also shortlisted for the best documentary Oscar. Uh, In any case, it's a recreation of America's first mass shooting when Charles Whitman climbed the University of Texas Tower and spent 96 minutes firing at anyone within range. Uh, To do a straight-up recreation of the event would be in very bad taste. Uh, So what Maitland has done is adapt an oral history that was written for Texas Monthly and animate all of the key players using the rotoscoping process, which you'll remember from another Austin filmmaker, Richard Linklater, in Waking Life and Scanner Darkly. Um, And Tower is just a riveting and ultimately quite moving tale of heroism that deliberately minimizes Whitman in order to honor the courage of his victims and the people who race, risk their lives uh, to help them. And, uh, you know, it's still trickling around the country. You can go to uh, – Kino Lober is putting it out, so they have a, a website saying where. Uh, but it should find its way onto DVD and streaming services in 2017. Uh, but totally check it out. It's, it's what – you know, if, I'm, I'm, I'm very – finicky about documentaries i always want documentaries that are going to really push the form and be films and uh, tower is certainly a very striking example of that
2: this has been a really good year for documentary it feels like yeah yeah Um, i'm really looking forward to checking out tower that's uh, there's a screener waiting for me and that's definitely on my to watch in the near future list
1: Yeah, it's, it's not that long
0: yeah, it seems like it's uh, beginning to show up on people's year-end lists yeah. in a way that makes it seem like a uh, pretty required watching.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, for myself, I've got a couple of things. Um, one, just briefly, there is an article on Vanity Fair called How Pacific Islanders Helped Disney's Moana Find Its Way. Um, people often like hit me up on Twitter and are just like, "What? Wh- where did you get this information? Like, What did you read? You researched uh, for this podcast. I want to read more about it. If you want to read more about it, uh, you can either go to Reading Rainbow or you can read this article <laughs> which is a really interesting kind of explanation of how Disney put together the group well, how the directors really put together this group of people um, that they used as researchers and it has some really specific interesting details. Man, we got so much caught up in the Chosen One aspects and the, the music of this movie. We didn't even really talk about Maui and like what a fun character that is and how much fun Dwayne Johnson seems to have playing everything these days but specifically this character which seems so built around him this article has some really interesting facts about how the maui character was developed and some of the things that went into him creating him visually um which were vetted through uh like actual like Pacific Islander, like researchers and mythologists, um, among other things, he was originally designed as a bald character, and the animators had to be told, you know, for a Samoan god, the the power is in the hair. That's part of his masculinity. He needs big hair, and they they drew him with big hair. And they, and they,
2: they, they there's even a, like a tossed out line about keeping his hair silky. Yeah, you know? and
0: I know it's I know it's a lot. The hair, the bod. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, it's a really interesting read. Um, The other thing is, it just, it seems like it would be a shame to talk about uh, Disney and its impact Mm. on people and particularly uh, younger people and not talk about the documentary Life Animated, which is a story of a, I believe at the point where they made the film, he was 23 years old, an autistic man who, when he was three years old, he stopped speaking and withdrew into himself and his parents spent years trying to reach him and then one day realized that he... He was not only talking, he was quoting his favourite Disney movies. And he Owen Susskind basically learned to understand the world again as an autistic man through Disney movies. The broadness of the emotions, um, the specificity of the situations, the fact that so many of these stories are specifically about young people learning to express themselves. He learned to understand the world through Disney movies, and that's still how, as a 23 year old, he relates to the world. So, Life Animated is about his journey out of basically a place where he couldn't communicate to the place. where he moves out on his own as an adult for the first time and it's got animated segments which are very abstract and stylized and disney influenced and beautiful so if you like animation that's one reason to watch it but it's also just a really well-assembled documentary that tells a really interesting story about how art influences us and about how the impact of disney movies goes beyond you know what we what we see and understand on screen as as kids or as parents am i the only one that's seen it
1: I have not seen it. No, I, I know. I know uh, our friend Noel Murray is a big fan yeah. of that movie. It's As, on. It's
2: on my very large to watch pile. I will hopefully yeah, get to it before so crafting your endless. It's but, pretty
1: substantial. Yeah. Uh, Genevieve, what do you have?
2: I am going to keep this short because I am recommending something that has already been recommended on this podcast, but when it was recommended, it was in very few theaters, and it is now available on Amazon Prime, uh, streaming for free, and that is the movie The Fits, which I believe you recommended a while back, Keith. This is the debut feature from Anna Rose Homer who uh, wrote and directed this movie, which follows an 11-year-old girl named Tony, who kind of inhabits this community center along with a bunch of other youths. Um, she starts out kind of training as a boxer with her older brother and kind of helping out around the community center, but she gets drawn in to this dance troupe of all girls and things start happening. And it's not super... Clear specific what is happening and why it 's happening, and that 's part of the appeal of the story that 's uh, taking place it 's a pretty like abstracted narrative and doesn 't necessarily seem to be trying to make a point so much as putting you in this very enchanting atmosphere. I really just liked watching the I liked being in this world for seventy two minutes it 's a very short movie it 's an easy, fast watch. But I would, I would highly recommend it. Um, with the caveat, don't go into it expecting to necessarily know what happened at the end of the movie. <laughs>
0: it's not a movie about answers it's yeah. it's like the leftovers the series mm-hmm. it's a movie about feelings about very specific moods and feelings it's a movie about female sexuality mm-hmm. and how people react to it it's a movie about it's like the the crucible it, you know yeah. it's, a, it's movie, a movie about hysteria it's a movie about hysteria and how it spreads and it's really a movie about how like young girls relate to each other mm-hmm. in a lot of interesting ways so you can see why i related to it <laughs> <laughs> I'm like well, Keith related to it even though he was never a teenage girl. Mm-hmm.
2: I am th- pretty sure I saw that specifically because of your recommendation, Keith.
3: I'm I'm doing good work
2: though. <laughs> and and I was reminded to watch it. I am going to sneak in one little mini recommendation here at the end. I was reminded to watch it because it was it appeared on David Ehrlich's video supercut of his top 25 films of 2016, which is always a real treat even if we don't agree with some of his picks. It's always just a great reminder of the film year that was and it's it's, it's always worth checking out
1: oh, I, I, I love it just because I think you really get a sense of you know what I love about film which is which is just a, an extraordinary diversity of style like you mm-hmm. just get like wow you think all those incredible images that are coming at you so fast uh, were made I- this year and they're just unlike anything you, you see any in any other medium really I just we should put it's... a link to that on our Facebook page.
0: yes I think we can yeah. very easily do yeah. exactly that uh-huh. And that's it for this week's edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next episodes will come out December 26th and 28th. Uh, Scott, you want to tell us what we have for those?
1: Uh, Sure. You know, if I were a betting man, and I am, as it happens, (laughs) uh, I'd put a significant amount of money on La La Land winning Best Picture next year. Uh, And I'm confident, certainly, that many people will love uh, Whiplash director Damien Chazelle's new film, uh, the rare musical that's been written and choreographed directly for the screen, And because it's the rare musical, written and choreographed directly for the screen, Chazelle gets to cherry-pick from the very finest influences from Singing in the Rain to An American in Paris to The Bandwagon. But La La Land also features a bittersweet romance that owes a great deal to Jacques Demy's The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, which happens to be Keith Phipps' favorite movie of all time, and one of mine, too. So on our next show, we'll look at La La Land and The Umbrellas of Cherbourg and their charming, sad, colorful versions of Je T'aime.
0: In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Mulan and Moana and anything else film-related. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before we close out this week's episode, where can
2: we find everyone these days? Genevieve. You can find me at the culture section at Vox.com and on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky.
3: You can find me at uprocks.com and on Twitter as KFIps 3000
1: You can find me on Twitter at at Scott underscore Tobias. And you can find my work in uh, New York Times, Variety, Washington Post. I have a – I'm in The Guardian now. I have a, <laughs> Congratulations. Ran a piece in The Guardian. I have another piece coming up uh, for, for The Guardian. Um, so, um, you know, I'm out and about.
0: I'm excited about that Guardian
1: stuff. Yeah, you know. <laughs> well, it's it's a, it's a little bit of money. It's
0: It's a living. <laughs> Tasha? As uh, Flintstones Animals mm-hmm. used to say, uh, you can find me writing about film and other culture at Verge.com. You can also right now find me at NPR Books, uh, writing for the book concierge. The 2016 book concierge just came out with more than 300 book recommendations of things that came out in 2016. You can find me on Twitter at Tosh Robinson. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show via Twitter at NextPicturePod, via Facebook at Facebook.com Picture NextPictureShow, or by visiting NextPictureShow.net. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes, and while you're there, think about rating and reviewing us. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Colin the Animal Griffith for his assistance producing the show, and thanks to Delmark Records for providing recording space at their home base, Riverside Studios. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the film-spotting family of podcasts. Podcasts and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time.
1: You're welcome. Can I say except you're welcome for the islands I pull from the sea? There's no need to pray, it's okay. You're welcome. Ha, I guess it's just my way of being me. You're welcome.